What's going on, you guys? What's up? What's up? Toy with the T on the line, and welcome. Thank you for joining me. So today I have a guest on the line. So I was trying to reach out with this young man a little while ago, but uh, we couldn't get with each other. But basically, you guys, I want to bring to you tonight uh, Dexter Rembish. He is uh, running for uh, DA of Spalding Pike, Upson Counties. I'm going to let him give you guys all the rest of the counties. Tell him all of the counties you'll be representing. Spalding, Fayette, Upson, and Pike. Spalding, Fayette, Upson, and Pike. All right. And you'll be running for uh, DA of those uh, districts. Is that correct? Of those That's areas? correct. Absolutely. Okay, so um, let me turn the floor over to you, you guys. So, of course, Toy with the T here with Mr. Dexter Wimbish on the line today to talk about his uh, running for DA of these counties. I'm going to turn the mic over to you so you can just kind of tell them um, your position, what you're running for, and who you're representing. Well, I got in this race a couple months ago. Uh, it was a special election call after the current DA was appointed by the governor. And I just felt like it was incumbent that the people have an opportunity to speak uh, since the Supreme Court had declared that the governor could not appoint her to serve out the remaining two years. Um, I spent the last 20, 27 years of my life uh, as a criminal defense attorney and working in civil and human rights within the, um, with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and other civil rights organizations. And I just felt like that people need to have the opportunity to have their voices heard. These uncontested judicial and district attorney races, you know, we shouldn't have those because the, the community needs to be able to have their voices heard in order to uh, make sure that these offices are responsive to the community. Absolutely. And you say you've worked 27 years for what was the background again? Um, I'm an attorney. I've been practicing law on the criminal, criminal side and the civil side for 27 years. I sat for the last seven years of as a municipal court judge in Greensboro, Georgia. Uh, I've also been, I was the general counsel for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, as well as the counsel for, the legal counsel for an organization called the Center for Democratic Renewal that was started by Reverend C.T. Vivian. Um, so I, I bring a lot of experience in, in the, from a community um, activist um, background. And so my campaign is a, re, is a reform campaign looking to change how the legal system works, and especially as it relates to minorities and, and people of color. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So with that being said, absolutely, you do have some great experience. But I guess as, uh, you know, just a regular person, you know, not coming from a professional aspect, um, what is your background? I think that's something that's very important when we seek out who our leadership is going to be and how you can probably identify with some of the people or the high risk individuals who may potentially be um, faced with you know, law enforcement or, or being arrested and things of that nature. What, what kind of background can you bring to kind of help identify with those individuals who may be at a higher risk and who may find themselves uh, coming into touch with the law? Yeah. Um, I come from a single parent household. I've um, been raised and I lived in Georgia my entire life. I moved here about five years ago. I, I have a, a very keen understanding of how policy works and, and how policies affect uh, individuals who come from disenfranchised communities. Uh, I've seen as a judge and as an attorney uh, that the law does not oftentimes apply to individuals 
uh, from from every background. And so I, I look at from the standpoint of we have to develop community partnerships between law enforcement and the community, bringing in um, community-based organizations, bringing in churches, uh, because what we have now is a system of mass incarceration and probation, and that is not working. Uh, and the recidivism rates are uh, through the roof. Our budgets cannot handle this continued belief that mass incarceration is the answer. We've got to move towards a place where uh, we treat individuals differently and not and just not not faceless. And that's the key. You know, how do you how do we create a, a culture in our communities that is responsive to the needs of the community? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's very true. And uh, I know a position like this can be uh, very vital to, you know, the lives of some adults. But I guess I think, you know, um, what is something that you are bringing to try to, I guess, help um bring integrity and fairness you know to this position and i guess from a uh community aspect as well uh when it comes to incarceration with you have now understanding what do we do about preventative measures and how do you think that you can you know utilize this position to possibly bring up some preventative measures to go along with the amount of integrity that we have when we deal with people who may be coming into contact with us? Well, you know, one of the issues with the system of mass incarceration is the system is designed to put people in jail as opposed to having a system that's designed for restorative justice. And so that has to begin, that has to begin at the beginning of the process. First, understand that, you know, the DA's office, the first obligation is to the victim. And so the victim has to be paramount in that process. But at the same time, we got to look at how do we stop so many um some of these crimes from being committed. And that's looking at some of the social and the economic issues that's facing our community. We just can't, we can't separate the two. And we you know because when somebody is sent, sent to jail, it's not just they're affecting them, they're affecting their families. You know, there's an issue of, issue of banishment with people and they being thrown out of communities and not being able to maintain contact with their families. So how do you expect them to be able to reintegrate into society? The issue of extended use of probation that keeps people on paper, you know, even after they, um, served their time um, and, and paid their fine, they're still on probation. And that prevents people oftentimes being able to get you know, to get jobs. And a lot of it comes down to what cases have to be prosecuted and including incarceration and what cases can we can we look at alternative means of, of sentencing. Also looking at uh, mentoring pro uh, mentoring programs we can put in our community to help our young people uh, to keep who, who get off track to get back on track. You know, partnerships um, with different uh, churches, with different community-based organizations, uh, to look at it from a different standpoint, a holistic standpoint, rather than just the notion of our job is to lock everybody up and throw away the key. And that that has not worked, uh, and we got to figure out a way to free up resources so we can deal with a lot of the violent crimes that oftentimes go unprosecuted for years because the system is so bogged down dealing with these other type cases. If we move away from the mass incarceration model, we can, in fact, reallocate resources to deal with the violent crimes and the drug crimes that are plaguing our community. Absolutely, totally Absolutely. agree. Um, and as we talk about, um, you know, this uh, fight to kind of create or recreate or strengthen uh, the trust and the actual procedures within our judicial system. Um, 
Do you do you anticipate any challenges or at least any backlash, you know, like trying to go into this system whom uh in your belief, you know, a lot of us feel a like lot it of doesn't us work and we probably need to reallocate some funds to preventative measures. But do you anticipate maybe some kickback, you know, just with your experience and being in this field for so many years and I'm sure, you know, being around so many people, how how, like, what is the outcome? Do you think that people are maybe going to push back or maybe even be against uh, coming with something to support, you know, a lack of being able to uh, put people in, in, in jail? Well, I, I fully expect kickback, pushback, because we are so accustomed to the system that we're living in. Um, it's a system that's been working this way for for decades now. People are accustomed to this is how the system is supposed to work. It is a punitive system. But what we're finding out is that that punitive system is not working. So, of course, there's going to be backlash. There's going to be backlash when you start talking about increased accountability, but we have to have increased accountability. The fact of the matter is that many communities have never trusted law enforcement. And, and, and in many cases, they've got good reason you, we have law enforcement that's not being held accountable for that for the actions. But at the same time, as a community, we've got to we've got to learn how we interact with law enforcement, you know, especially in, in communities of color who have been besieged by uh, oppressive means for years and years. You know, they don't you know, they when they look at law enforcement, they don't necessarily see law enforcement the same way that somebody may see law enforcement in, in another community. So we've got to forge new partnerships between law enforcement, community policing. We got to change that model. Uh, because everybody in our community is not a drug dealer, they're not a violent gang member, and you can't treat people the same way. Just like in, we've got the school to prison pipeline now, while young people are being uh, targeted in, in, in schools now, and they end up not only with a dis disciplinary issue, they end up with criminal charges. That's something that wasn't happening 25 or 30 years ago. You know, why have we gotten to that place? We got to look at some, look at those issues and come up with some real tough questions and tough answers. And everybody's not going to agree with it, but you know, leadership has to, you know, and leadership has to push for new ways of dealing with these issues because the way we're dealing with it now is just simply not working. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, of course, uh, I think one thing that I would like to bring to the table as I move forward is the breakdown of the judicial system and how each part is very vital and not to, you know, uh, put you as the end all be all to crime, but you are in a very pivotal position to be able to help uh, influence and encourage different behaviors from um, a law enforcement perspective. But with that being said, what is your take on per se? Um, not only forging relationships with people in the community that may have had previous um, incarceration issues, but for people who may be um, getting released from prison and then paying back their debt to society, um, how do you feel about uh, maybe lightening some of the laws and some of the rules when it comes to getting certain jobs with, you know, city and state facilities, or even, you know, as a DA, you know, can you imagine a program that, you know, is scaled to meet the needs of the people who are breaking crimes? Because we know there's always a reason, nine times out of 10 behind it. But if you have candidates that were probably recommended or even sought out 
to maintain positions, you know, within government and um, state sectors, you know, as a way to work off their um, punishment or after they have paid back their debt to society. How do you feel about that after the fact? I think those are all options that need to be studied. They, they, they got to be studied because uh, there's no doubt. You just check the um, check the ballot um, uh, issues. Uh, we've got to look at those. I mean, I mean, oftentimes the crimes that people commit have no relationship to the job they're trying they're trying to, to uh, achieve. I noticed recently, even in the city of Atlanta, they eliminated the use of certain uh, crimes as it relates to background for uh, for employment. And so th those are social and and. and those are social issues, socioeconomic issues that have to be addressed. And I'm fully supportive of, of anything that's going to help an individual be reintegrated back into society because what's the option? If you don't give them economic options, chances are they're going to end up committing another crime. Mm -hmm. If you put them on probation for extended amounts of time, not able to get a job, I mean, what do we think happens to those people? They end up back committing crimes. And you, you've got tons and tons of jobs in um, in, in the technical in technical fields, or um, you know, air conditioning, plumbing, those type fields that people could be, you know, um, led into those types of fields if their record was not being held against them. So there's got to be this issue of expanding Georgia's record restriction program beyond where what it is now to allow people to be able to restrict their records. It doesn't make sense that somebody had on the fence 20 years ago and that offense is still holding them back from getting a job. It doesn't make sense that people who uh, people have committed their um, have committed their sentence don't understand it in the state of Georgia. Once you pay all your fines and complete the sentence, you're automatically eligible to go back on the voting rolls. People don't know that. They're not told that. Uh, those are some of the things that we can do from an educational standpoint to empower individuals to become productive members of society, which is the, the, the end result that we seek. Absolutely. Absolutely. And definitely, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm for uh, Black excellence in every way, you know, and even uh, to the point to where you should happen to find yourself in trouble. I still believe operating in excellence wherever you are not only can get you to a, a, a early release, you know, but you just never know um, who's watching you and who knows people on the outside and how things can transpire no matter what the situation you're in. So I feel like, you know, if we have someone who understands the ethics in the backgrounds, it will be easier to judge them more fairly instead of just thinking everyone is criminals and crooks and give everybody the maximum sentence. Um, and I also think that it would give you the eye to say, you know, Hey, I think that, you know, uh, we have a program for you potentially that we might want you to enter, you know, and in the event you cannot fulfill the obligation of this program, then we might look at doing you some time, you know, so um, uh, with being the DA and um, your past as a judge, um, can you see there be more room for different programs or different um um, partnerships that we can develop as a um, incarceration alternative. And in the event that they should not follow the guidelines of these programs, then we should look at facing some real time. Like, uh, do you think that that can be something that could be instituted more? Is it a need more forward? Would you be for something like that in that position? There's, there's a... 
is there's an increased need for alternative sentencing. There's an increased need for funding for accountability courts so that individuals don't have to end up being incarcerated. We got to have more funding for those for those programs. There are mentoring programs that need to be developed for our, for our young people. You know, one of the things we've done in the last few years in, in my courtroom is that as it relates to you know simple drug offenses, we moved away from the from um, um, from incarceration to a system where there is online education. They pay a fine, and if they qualify, they they are um, sentenced under the alternative uh, under uh, the conditional discharge statute. Uh, we've had situations where we had young people come in as opposed to them doing the fine. They've written essays, they've done videos, they've done online education. Um, we've got a program called Degrees for Dismissal, where if you come in and you don't have a high school diploma or a GED, you go get that and you bring it back, and then your case gets dismissed, and that GED or high school diploma is used to pay, actually pay your fine. So there are, there, are, there are ways, I think, that once we get into place and do some real analyzation and an assessment of what we have, especially post COVID-19, we can begin to look at how the, what are the different ways that we can address these issues without focusing on, you know, incarceration. But understanding that, you know, you got some, you got a segment of the population that incarceration is sometimes long time incarceration is the only way you're going to deal with those people. You know, they made a decision that criminality is going to be their life. And you have to deal with them that way. And you just so you just move past that. And I look at it from, from an 80-20 rule, there's about 80% of us who 80% of people getting involved in the criminal justice system. Right. It's a one-time event. It's something that is it's a bump in the road. You know, let's get those people out of the system and back into society so we can focus our resources, time, money, and, and personnel on locking up those who are committing the more serious and violent crimes in, in our community. And once we do, once we start to deal with that. Once we get a process where, where criminals understand if you commit a crime, you're going to be you're going to be tried and you're going to be punished. Uh, we'll see a reduction in crime at that point. Right, right. Which you know, and that leads me to this to this question because I think that clearly we the people get the fact that breaking a crime you go to jail. Um, but I think the next level would be you know, oftentimes we see issues to where. Uh, we sit in jail because of a lack of funds and misrepresentation or lack of representation and other people may be able to hire high-priced lawyers to get them off of uh, certain charges that someone who cannot afford a lawyer uh, may get a maximum amount of time for um, as a DA, you know, uh, knowing the law, you know, understanding, okay, if this lawyer uh, pleads a good case, um, they get off, but, but that is an injustice that I think we, the people, um, suffer from. And in your position, what, what, what is the suggestion to tell a family who, okay, cannot afford to have a representation, but may have someone else, and because their lawyer is better, is why they may not get the same amount of time. How, how, how does that go hand in hand with the legal system and the integrity? Yeah, that. That's not the that's not the DA's uh, job. You know, the DA's office is to prosecute crime, and and that's what we do. But what I do bring to the office is going to be a, a level of integrity and transparency. Uh, that, for instance, if we're not going to try crime, we're not going to arrest people and try people for crimes where there's not enough evidence to support the crime. Uh, I believe that we need to move to a um, um, to eliminate the cash bond process. 
I think that people need to be on these um, low offenses, crime need to be um, released on their own recognizance. Those are some of the ways that we can help um, create a, a system that's more um, uh, that's more sensitive to the plight of those who oftentimes languish in jail because they can't make bond, they can't hire a private attorney, and they end up sitting there for months and in out of really sometimes out of necessity they end up pleading up pleading, you know they may not may not be guilty. But you know, as DA my job is to put people in jail for crimes that they commit and punish them for those crimes. And, and that's what I'll be committed to, but at the same time understanding that you know, there are levels of, of fairness and equality that still have to be presented. You know, if you got exculpatory evidence, you know, my office is going to turn that exculpatory evidence over, not hold the evidence in hopes that, you know, you can pressure somebody into taking a plea for a crime that they, they didn't commit. Because at the end of the day, the, the, the objective of the criminal justice system is not a conviction, it's justice. And, and I think that's where we have it wrong right in this system that we believe that the purpose of the criminal justice system is a conviction rather than justice. Absolutely. And I think that's and very I, important too with these people. Okay, so I guess when it comes to race brutality, you know, this is the next level of what happens. And I think this is, you know, uh, probably the, the, the level that has everyone on an uproar, you know, from police handling and, um, police officers exercising brutality and it not coinciding with the law. Um, and I'm going to just use, you know, the, the example of, you know, the George Floyd cases in a lot of these cases, you know, as a judge and um, wanting to go for a DA, um, can you maybe point out some issues that we, the people, you know, might have gotten on wrong convictions of some of these officers when in fact to us it looked like it was criminal and negligent versus where it may have worked to their behalf on the side of the law i didn't, I didn't hear that last part of the question you went out i was trying to see if um you can you can maybe comment on how some officers may have gotten away with uh something that we may have saw as criminal or brutal and you know a da maybe have let them off like what's your insight with your experience on uh potentially some ways that an officer can get off with something that look, looks brutal but it, it it works in their defense you know like some of the cases that we've been seeing yeah i, I think it goes it goes to training and it goes to a it goes to training and it goes to accountability. Um, first of all, you got to be open to the idea of prosecuting those who've done wrong. You can't protect people who are not being who are not being accountable to to the community. And and so I think it's a process. I think that we're having we're seeing a lot more education in so we're seeing a lot more education and awareness as to what. A DA can do. You take, for instance, in the case of the Mont Arbery, where there was uh, quite a bit of community backlash, and, and and so we ended up seeing the DA being replaced replaced there. Uh, and so I think as we as we move along, we're going to see more and more of that of the community just not accepting the refusal to prosecute officers, especially when you know there are facts that show there's clearly some issues there uh, with accountability and transparency. 
Absolutely. And that's great. And and I guess, you know, just with all the years of experience, let me ask you, what can you say, if you're even allowed to talk about it, in your career, what is probably one of the most trying cases that has ever come across uh, you in your career? I don't, I don't really talk much about my... I don't really talk much about the cases I've been involved in, in any sort of specifics. Um, um, as a criminal defense attorney, you know, some of the cases, we've, I've had cases where we've had individuals who were accused of doing crime, who were not, um, who were actually did not commit the crime. We're able to, able to get them out. We're, we're proud, we're proud of that. Um, but in, the, in my role as DA, that's a very different role. And so I'm focused. I'm focused on that. I'm focused on at this point, make sure everybody gets everybody gets justice. Um, making sure that people get fairness and equality, regardless of where they come from. Absolutely, absolutely. And 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 you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in knowing how does something like that affect you, like as a um, prosecutor, you know, and you're going through the evidence. And you recognize that the person you're prosecuting isn't guilty. How can that affect not only the case? I mean, you know, what challenges can that cause for not only a prosecutor, which I totally get why one may want to look over it, but like how challenging can that be for everything? And can anything be done when you, the prosecutor, acknowledge that this person might potentially be innocent like like what can i do for a case well i mean there's a there's a there's an ethical obligation on the state's part that if you uncover exculpatory evidence meaning evidence that might lead to the exoneration of an individual you have to turn that evidence over and so i think that, that that's the key is that we have to have a level playing field and not bring charges, knowing that somebody is innocent of the crime, but hoping that the system is going to result, um, is going to result um, in a conviction. And, and so that's that's how I look at it. I look at it, you know, from an ethical standpoint. Um, we got to change that culture because we got to be dispensing justice and not dispensing convictions. And I think coming from the side of the defense side and also sitting as a judge. You know, I can bring that aspect to the prosecutor's side that this is not about a high rate of conviction. This is not about being tough on crime, especially because if you decide to bring charges against somebody that you know is innocent of the crime, you know, you're disrupting them, you're disrupting the family. And you might also be opening yourself up to some civil liabilities, you know, in uh, in, in the future. So those things have to be taken into consideration. Absolutely. Well, you know what, well, you know, Wimbish, thank you Wimbish. so much for joining me today. I was just trying to ask some of the questions that I think, you know, we just want to know as a community. I think you've done great. Um, I already had a stamp of approval before we even spoke to this day, so I'm totally confident. Um, and give you, I wish you all the luck, man, on winning um, this position of DA. I think I... Definitely, I feel like you got it. Um, but definitely, thank you for taking the time to have a discussion with me. Let me answer those questions. I appreciate you so much. And if you ever need anything, remember, I'm here for you in any way I can. And I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Well, thank you. Now.
Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I'm going to remind everybody to go out to vote tomorrow, February 9th. Spalding, uh, Spalding, Fayette, Pike, and Upson County from 7 to 7 at your regular, regular precinct. Thank you and have a great evening. Thank you so much. All right, you guys. Thank you so much for joining me, man. Toy with the T, of course, and I was on the line with Mr. Dexter Wembish, who is running for DA. So make sure you guys go ahead and vote tomorrow. Thank you guys for joining me so much. Make sure you go ahead, get out and vote. Make sure you vote for Dexter. He's the man with the plan, man. I think we definitely need this level of integrity in our communities, man. So thank you so much. Make sure you like, share, subscribe, and join. And don't forget, go vote tomorrow. Griffin, go Mr. Wimbish. You have our votes, and we hope to see you soon. So thank you, guys. Sway with the T. Make sure you follow me on all social media. And don't forget, go vote. Bye. Hey, Matthew. Hey, you going, girl? What's up? Bye, home. What, what you going to me, girl? Huh? You, home? you need me to come take you home? Yeah. Okay. You going here? You come get me tomorrow? Tomorrow? Yeah. I was going to come get you now. But what I'm saying, you going to stay tonight. You want me to stay tonight? Yeah. Ain't gotta come over here. Ain't I gotta come here tomorrow? Oh yeah, you gotta go to the doctor. I don't know. I just got somewhere to be tomorrow. Yeah, you gotta go to the doctor tomorrow. So you gonna be around? Yeah. You want me to take you home? 